There are a wide range of thoughts and feelings that come when an artist comes to a blank canvas. I, I, I did a little research this week in preparation for this message, uh, and it was intriguing to me to notice the different reactions or different responses that artists have when they come to a blank canvas. For example, there were those who described this immense fear and this trepidation as that blank canvas stands in front of them, and they almost feel this sense of overwhelming what do I do? What, like, there's that blank camera. What am I going to put on it? And so there's this fear and trepidation. And then other artists describe this immense joy and excitement as they see all of the potential right there in front of them. And some artists describe how it's a little bit of a mixture of both, how there's this excitement and joy, but at the same time, this fear and trepidation of like, what am I going to put on a blank canvas? I share that with you because if you were with us last week, we talked about how we can have a clean slate with God. We said that in our lives, many of us, we have messed up so frequently and so often and some of us so bad that we wondered if it would be possible for God to wipe that clean. You remember we used the analogy of the, the chalkboards and how teachers would erase, but there would still be little freckles or little chalk dust left. And so at the end of the day, they would have to take that wet rag and wipe it clean. And so last week we looked at 1 John chapter 1 and we saw how we can have that clean slate with God, how we can wash all of that away if we confess. Remember that, that key to unlocking God's forgiveness and that clean slate is in confession, coming in agreement with God about our sin and needing Jesus. And so we looked last week at how we can get this clean slate, how we can have a blank canvas, but it's not enough just to have a blank canvas. It's not enough just to have God wash all that sin away. He wants to do something with this life. He wants to paint on us his glory and majesty and fame so that the rest of this world gets to look and see, wow, that's a pretty good God. And so it's not just about getting the blank canvas, which we looked at last week. It's about letting God paint on us that which will show the rest of the world what a great and good God he is. And so that's what I want to build on this week. I want us to go and see what does that look like and how can we do that? Because I want my life to be a canvas upon which God can paint his glory and perfection for this world to see. I don't know about you, but that's what I want for my life. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll be honest, I, I know I said this last week, but I'll say it again. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is another one of those favorite passages of mine. I love this. Um, some, somebody once asked me, what's your favorite verse of Scripture? I'm like, that's like asking me which one of my kids is my favorite. Like, I love, I love them all. Uh, I don't have a favorite. Um, and, and there's so many meaningful Scriptures that God has used in my life time and time again to lead me and guide me and mold me and shape me. And so there are numerous passages of Scripture that are like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is one of those that I find myself returning to frequently because it's so good and so powerful. Um, but before we dive into reading there in verse 12, 
let me kind of set the stage and set the scene so we're not just jumping blindly into the text. Um, the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they detail the life of Jesus. They show us the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are contained in the Gospels. The book of Acts picks up with the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the beginning of the early church as those first century believers lived out what it looked like to be in a relationship with God and be led by the Holy Spirit in their daily life. Beginning in the book of Romans, we have letters, individual letters that God inspired through his messengers to be given to individual churches including the one that we're going to read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this church that Paul is writing to, this Corinthian church, it's got some problems. And that's kind of putting it mildly. Okay, they had some major problems. They are young believers. And because they were young believers, there were some wrong things that they were believing. And I think I said this last week, and I say it all the time to our students. They could probably quote me on this one. But it's really one of those important principles. You see, what you believe matters because what you believe determines how you behave. I was going to say, I got some of my students in here. You all know that. What you believe determines what you do, how you behave. And so they had these wrong beliefs, and it was resulting in some wrong behavior. And so Paul's got to write this letter. He needs to correct these wrong beliefs and these wrong behavior patterns that they're engaging in. And it's in the middle of that that you're going to see how that we can live a life that is transformed by God and shows God to the rest of the world around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's pick up there in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In the letter, Paul is going to address these wrong beliefs and these wrong behaviors because it's leading to this wrong picture of God in front of the world around them. These corrections and these wrong beliefs and these wrong behaviors are not unique to first century Corinth. They're problems in our world as well. And so these principles that Paul is writing, they're just as valid and relevant for you and me today as they were when he first wrote them. Okay, so I want to point out to you four wrong beliefs that, that these Corinthian believers were believing, and I'm going to put it in a way so that we understand that they are just as valid for us today. Here's wrong belief, number one, that Paul wants to correct. He wants to tell them that your freedom is not for sin. 
Your freedom is not for sin. You'll notice that verse 12 begins with this phrase, all things are lawful for me. In fact, in some of your translations, that part of the verse is going to be in quotation marks. And the reason is because this was apparently a phrase that the Corinthian believers were trying to use. This was actually something that they were saying in order to explain their behavior. So if someone was questioning them why they were doing something that might be considered sinful, you know what their answer was? All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful. Can you imagine what those conversations sounded like? So, John, why did you take Bob's pair yesterday? All things are lawful for me. Sally, why were you gossiping about Fran? Because all things are lawful for me. Sounds crazy, right? Foolish. Ridiculous. They're using this as an excuse for sin. The problem is, and the really sad thing is, it's actually built upon something that it really is true, something the Bible really does teach. You see that in Christ, we are set free. In Christ, we have been set free. The, the St. Paul that wrote this letter to the Corinthians wrote a letter in, to, the, to the church at Galatia, Galatia. And in the fifth chapter, he makes this statement. Christ has liberated us to be free. He flat out says, Christ has liberated us. He set us free so that we are free. And Jesus himself in the Gospel of John says, Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. This is built upon, it's predicated upon, it's based upon something that the Bible does teach, that in Christ you are free. And so the Corinthian believers, they're taking this true teaching, this correct belief, and they're stretching it to mean something that the Scripture does not teach. You see, the Scriptures do teach that a person, when a person is in Christ, they've been set free from the law of sin and the law of death, and they truly are free to live as God has designed them to live. But here's what the Corinthian believers wanted to do. They wanted to take this, all things are lawful for me, and they wanted to twist it. They wanted to stretch it. They wanted to make it mean anything goes. Anything goes. That's what they wanted to take this to mean. That your freedom in Christ means that anything goes. doesn't matter what it is. I can do whatever I want. God has set me free so I can do whatever I want. That's their argument here. And Paul is going to push back and Paul is going to correct that wrong belief with two very biblical truths. First, he reveals that, yes, Scripture teaches that all things are lawful, but that doesn't mean that anything goes. Why? Because, first of all, not all things are helpful. I don't know if you've learned this or not in your life, but not all things are helpful to you. Yes, they may be lawful. Yes, you can do it. Maybe you should, but it's not helpful for you to do it. Look, look at the second half of verse 12. Right after he says, all things are lawful for me, he, he makes this comment, but all things are not helpful. Maybe your translation says, but not all things are beneficial. You've learned this to be true, right? Just because you can do something does not mean that you should. You've learned that in life, I hope, or if not, you're, you're going to. Just because you can do something does not mean that you should. And I'll just give you a silly example. Um, as you can tell, school the last couple of weeks had a traumatic impact on me. So I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're back in school. Just for a moment, you're back in school. 
and you walk into your science class. And your teacher all of a sudden says, surprise, pop quiz time. And not only are you getting a pop quiz, you're getting a pop quiz that's covering everything you've had up to that point. And now you know you're in trouble because you know you haven't been paying attention the last couple of weeks. You've been passing notes. That's, that's, okay, students, before you texted, before we texted each other, we passed notes. We wrote notes on paper and we passed, I know. Yeah. You know you haven't been paying attention. And the teacher makes this, he ups the ante because he says, it's going to be worth half of your grade. And now you're in trouble because you know you're not ready for this test and you know that you're about to sink your grade. So the teacher comes by and places the test right in front of you and you notice that there is something underneath. And you slip the test by and you see underneath the answer key. For the test. Your teacher has inadvertently given you the answer key to the test. And now you have a choice to make. Do I use that answer key and take, get the answers right? Can you do it? Absolutely. Should you do it? No. You, you see, we've learned that just because we can do something does not mean we should. And this is what Paul says. You guys that are using this, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. I've been set free. It doesn't matter. You ought to know that if, if for no other reason, that yes, it may be lawful for you, but it's not helpful for you to do that. Just having the ability or opportunity to do something does not make it right. And Paul wants these believers to understand that just because you have been set free through Christ does not mean that you can or should sin. You don't have the freedom to sin. I would just remind us all this morning, Jesus did not go to that cross and die the cruel, agonizing death that he did just so you and I could stand up here and go, all things are lawful for me. Not all things are helpful. That's one biblical principle that Paul's going to refute that argument with. But there's another one. And this one is probably be even bigger in my mind. Not only is not everything helpful, he says not, not everything is permissible for me does not mean anything goes because Christ is to be our only master. And this is the really bigger issue. This is the more important thing. Not just that some things are not helpful, but Christ is to be our only master. In the book of Romans... In the, in the eighth chapter, God's word says this, Brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. Notice that phrase, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And so if those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, then you need to understand that the converse of that is true as well. That if you are not being led by the Spirit of God, then you are not a son or daughter of God. And hear me carefully. One of the pieces of evidence that you and I have been transformed. One of the pieces of evidence that we are genuinely in a relationship with Christ, that we have become disciples of Jesus, one of the pieces of evidence is that our life is increasingly led by the Holy Spirit. And so I need to evaluate my life. 
I need to imagine. I need to ask myself some hard questions. Am I increasingly led by the Spirit in my everyday life, in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, in my attitudes? Does it demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is leading me in all of those? Does it line up with God's Word? Do the things that I think about, do they line up with what God teaches? The words that I'm speaking, are they synonymous with what I find in Scripture? All of those questions we need to ask ourselves. And the reality is, if we can't say yes, then we need to ask ourselves some hard questions about whether or not we really are in a real relationship with Jesus. Because he says, as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If you and I are not surrendered to the Lordship of the Holy Spirit and leading our every moment, then we may need to question our salvation experience. As followers of Jesus, you and I are to have only one master. We are not to be controlled by anyone or anything except Jesus. Paul wanted these Corinthian believers to understand the danger of their wrong belief, the freedom that they were using as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. Paul understood that it was actually resulting in their slavery. You see, they thought they were free. All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. They thought they were free, but what they didn't know was that their freedom was actually resulting in their slavery. You see, it's a short trip from doing something you can do to doing something you have to do. Think about the person who decides to drink alcohol because they are free to do that. What happens over time? Well, the more they use their freedom to drink alcohol, the more they actually become enslaved to it. Just ask the alcoholic who lost his home, his job, his family and everything that he held dear because he started something and before he knew it, that something had a hold of him. It's a short trip. Or think about the, the person who's so consumed with being accepted that they will literally do almost anything to be accepted and like, I promise you it didn't start that way. I promise you when they started, there were boundaries. There were things that they would not do in order to get acceptance and approval. But the more acceptance and approval they got, the more their hearts longed for it. The next thing you know, they're doing things that never in a million years they would have ever imagined they would do. Because this freedom will actually lead to slavery. Paul told the Corinthian believers that all things are lawful for me did not mean anything goes because Christ is to be our only master. You need to understand your freedom that God has given you, that he bought it does not come with a license to sin. Some of these Corinthian believers actually believed that the freedom Jesus purchased for them on the cross meant that they were free to do whatever they pleased. They wanted to live like that meant anything goes. Church, listen, we live in one of the greatest countries in the world. We have freedoms that we enjoy that millions of people on this planet would die for. They would love to share those same freedoms. But you know as well as I do that those freedoms, even in the physical world, do not mean anything goes. We are free, yes, but that doesn't mean anything goes. You can't use that excuse with an officer 
when you steal something from your neighbor and he comes to a rescue and he says, why did you take that? Because officer, I am free. Guess what? Not anymore, you're not. Freedom does not mean anything goes. We know that. But I've actually heard some Christians try to use this argument to justify their sinful behavior. They'll say something like, who are you to tell me that I can't do blank? Jesus died on the cross and my Bible says that I am set free. I can do whatever I want. No, you misunderstand your Bible. If you've adopted that attitude, you've misunderstood God's grace because your freedom is not so you can sin. There's a second wrong belief that Paul's going to correct here in the text, though. It's this, your body is not for sin. Not only is your freedom not for sin, your body, that which God has given you, is not for sin. There's this phrase in verse 13 that you see again, foods for the stomach and stomach for fruits. It it almost seems like another common theme that the Corinthians were trying to use. They, they They seem to believe that the sinful things they were doing were actually designed for them because it was designed to be a part of life here on earth. As long as they were on earth, they thought, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the way it's going to be because I'm in a sinful world. In other words, they would say something like, I'm a sexual being. That's just the way God made me. So as long as I'm here on this earth, I'm going to enjoy sex with whomever, however, and as often as I want because that's the way God made me. And I don't know if you've caught this yet or not, but the it's okay, that's the way God made me argument isn't just something that the first Corinthian church had to deal with. This is still going on in our world today. It's still problematic in our day today. People still try to use this argument today for a wide range of sinful choices. Gluttony. They'll say, oh, I can't help it. That's just the way God made me. I love food. It's the way God made me. Lust. Oh, I can't help it. God made people just so beautiful, so I'm going to enjoy looking at their body. Or lying. I can't help it that I'm a good liar. It's just the way God made me. Paul corrected this wrong belief. He says, you, you missed the part, the point. You missed the mark. Your body is not for sin. And he's going to correct that wrong belief with two truths again. First, he reveals that we were made for God. Paul's going to remind us or teach these believers of this truth that you were made for God. You need to understand, your body was made for food. Was not made for food. Your body was not made for food. Your body was not made for pleasure. Your body was not made for fame or recognition. Your body was made for God. Paul says it in verse 13. When he says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He again reinforces that in the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. When he says, for by him were all things created, things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Your body was made for God. Listen, your body consumes food. It enjoys 
pleasure and take some delight in fame and recognition, but it was not made for those things. It was made for God. These Corinthians took something which God gave them to use and enjoy, and they made it the thing that they lived for. We were made to live for God, not sin and not something else. Some of these Corinthian believers thought they could do whatever they wanted because that's just the way that God made them. And as long as they were here on the earth, then God must want them to enjoy those things because after all, that's the way God made them. But Paul says, wrong. You're wrong. Your body was not made for sin. Your body was made for God. Church, what I want you to see and what I hope you'll see is the way that we live matters. The way that we live our lives, the thoughts that we think, the words we say, actions we take, attitudes we hold, all of that in this world, it really does matter. Because it does this, it paints a picture for the world around us. They know that we call ourselves Christians, and so they're looking at our lives. And the things that we do show others the nature and the character of the God that we claim to love and serve. And so what we do really does matter. By abusing their freedom and by using their body as an excuse for sin, these Corinthian believers were painting an improper picture of God. And I'm sadly afraid that the same thing is happening even in our world today that you have men and women going out and living in this world in such a manner that's contrary to Scripture. They're saying, yes, God gave me a clean slate. Yes, God has redeemed me. God has set me free. Now I can go do whatever I want. And you're living out there in this world in such a way that you're demonstrating that you think your body was made for sin and your freedom that Christ purchased was for your sin. You can do whatever you want. But nothing could be further from the truth. God did not set you free so you could sin. He did not give you your body so you could engage and indulge in whatever sinful pleasures your body may have. You were made for God. Your body is not for sin because you were made for God. But there's a second biblical truth Paul's going to correct that wrong belief with, and it's this. He says, we are one with God. We're one with God. So... Here's Paul's argument to these believers in verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ's? And in verse 17, anyone who, join, who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, when a person comes to the recognition of their sinful condition, when they realize that they're separated from God by their sin, and they recognize that, they turn to the Savior, they realize they need Jesus, and they repent of their sin, they make that confession that we talked about last week. When they surrender to Jesus as Lord, there is this supernatural union that takes place between a believer and God. That person is transferred out of the kingdom of death and darkness and brought into the kingdom of life and light. And according to the scriptures, the Bible claims that this person is now in Christ. You are in Christ. Because you are, you gain Christ's righteousness. Because you are in Christ, you now have his life. And because you're in Christ, you're no longer his enemy. You've been adopted into his family. You've become his son or his daughter. 
in the same way that there's a unique union, in the way that a husband and wife, the two become one flesh, the Bible teaches that there is a unique union that takes place between the sinner who repents of sin and places faith in Jesus and God himself. And so Paul's response to these Corinthians who say, I can sin because that's how God made me, goes something like this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you really think that God wants to be united with that sinful stuff? Are you kidding me? Do you really think that's what God wants? Do you really think that Jesus wants to have anything to do whatsoever with that which he had to go to the cross and die for? No. The next time you consider whether you should do something sinful or not, Stop and think about this. Would Jesus want to do this with me? When it's right there in front of you, stop and ask that question. Would Jesus want to do this with me? You see, if you're in a relationship with God, the scriptures teach that you are one with God. And so whatever you go and whatever you do, you are taking your Savior with you. And you know what it feels like to be drugged somewhere where you don't want to go. And you know what it feels like to be made to do something you don't want to do. Our Savior wants no part with sin. And when we use this excuse, I am set free, I can do what I want. We are uniting him with that which he wants no part of. Some of these Corinthian believers thought they could do whatever they wanted because it was just simply a part of being human. It was, what, it, it was the consequence of living on this earth. That's the way God made them. Paul says, no way, Jose. Your body was not made for sin, and you do not have to engage in it. So he says, your freedom is not for sin. Your body is not for sin. There's a third wrong belief he wants to correct. It's this, your sin is not harmless. Your sin is not harmless. You'll notice what he says in verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, now they knew this. They knew that lust and gluttony and sexual immorality and any other number of sins were actually the sins that they committed inside or with their body. The argument here is not about the location of the sin. The argument here is about the effect of the sin on their life. You see, they didn't really think that what they did with their body mattered because the sins that they committed didn't affect them. It's almost like they thought their sins were harmless. Like, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to do that. Yeah, but you know what? It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt me all that much. Maybe a little bit. It's basically harmless. And I love how blunt Paul is. In the end of verse 18, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. In short order, Paul says, you're wrong. Your sin does matter. Your sin does affect you. Your sin does hurt you. In ways which you may not even be able to fathom or comprehend right now, your sin does matter and it does hurt you. Why? Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your 
own. If you remember your Old Testament, you remember that the tabernacle was the place where God came down and he dwelt with men. It's the place where he would meet with them. And his, he has some pretty specific instructions on how it was to be constructed and some pretty specific instructions on how it was to be cared for. And Paul teaches these Corinthians here that the New Testament teaches that those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have repented of their sin, have now become the dwelling place of God. They've become the temple and the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. So stop and think of that for just a moment. That if Jesus is Lord of your life, if you've repented of your sin, then you have become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is where God chooses to reside. The Bible teaches that our bodies are to be places where the Holy Spirit can dwell. And so that means what we do with these bodies, it matters. It really matters. And even things like proper sleep and proper exercise and proper nutrition, those aren't unspiritual things because they care for the temple that God has given us. And they demonstrate care and concern for that building as well. The Bible's clear that our bodies are to be places where the Spirit can dwell. So what we do with our bodies matters. And when you and I choose to engage in sin, we are doing harm to ourselves. And we're doing harm to the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your sin, make no mistake, is not harmless. You may not see its effects right now, but there will come a day when you will. Stay away. Your freedom is not for sin. Your body's not for sin. Your sin is not harmless. Let me share with you one final wrong belief Paul's going to correct here in our text, and it's this. Your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. The society that you and I live in places a high value on personal liberty and freedom. A high value. And so we hear chants like, my life, my body, my choice. Or we hear things like, it's my life, I'll do whatever I want. These are the rallying cries of our society. But against that rallying cry, we have the word of God. And if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, then you need to hear what God says to that kind of attitude. Verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 20. For you are not your own. You were bought at a price. See, the Bible teaches that every one of us are sinners. Every single one of us has done that which God has said not to do, or we've not done that which God has said to do, and that separates us from him. Because we've chosen to do life our way, we're separated from God. And this is why Jesus had to come in order to bridge that gap, in order to heal that divide, in order to restore that relationship that had been ruptured by our sin. Jesus had to come. And he had to go to that cross. He lived that perfect sinless life so that when he went to that cross, he could die on that cross so that his life could then be offered as a substitute so that God could offer you and I forgiveness and eternal life. This is what the cost was. The sinless son of God had to lay down his life on that cross 
You were bought with a price. The shed blood of Jesus was paid so you could have freedom. What a high price has been paid to free us from the grips of sin and death. And yet Jesus loved us so extravagantly and so willingly that he went to that cross and paid that price. And so we need to hear, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And because that is true, God can make this last demand there in verse 20. Therefore, why? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit with your God's. Every moment of your life, every element of your life, every area of your life, at home, in the car, on the job, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing, every moment of your life is meant to be lived for the glory of God. Your thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes, all of that are to come into alignment with God. They're to be led by the Spirit of God so that when we do that, the world gets to see a picture of the Savior who loves them and who died for them. It's not just about getting a clean slate. It's not just about having sin washed away. It's about living a life surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus so that the rest of this world gets to see his glory put on display. And they're then drawn to the Savior because Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. You and I can be the canvas upon which God paints for this world to see. And my prayer is that we would be, that we would reject these lies that say, I can do whatever I want. I've been set free. I can live for sin. It doesn't matter. My sin's harmless. No, I've been bought with a price. And my life is not my own. And therefore, every day, every moment, everything I do, I will do for God's glory alone. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning that you've given us your word, that we may know you and be able to begin a relationship with you. I thank you for Jesus who makes that possible, who willingly went to that cross and laid down his life, shedding every drop of that blood in order to pay the price for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, my prayer this morning is there's e if there's even one person within the sound of my voice, whether in this room or watching online, that has not taken that step of faith and trusted in you, then would you remove whatever hindrances or whatever obstacles stand in the way of that taking place this morning? Reveal to them their greatest need for a Savior and show them Jesus who loved them enough to die for them. Let today be the day of salvation for them is my prayer. God, for your people who this message has predominantly been aimed at, believers who sometimes slip into these ungodly and unbiblical thought patterns where they think that they've been set free so they can do whatever they want or their body was given to them so they can use it however they want. God, help them see that nothing could be further from the truth, that you've set them free in order that they could live surrendered lives to you, submitted lives to you. And may you use every part of their life to showcase your glory and your grace so that this world may see Jesus and be drawn to that Savior that we love. God, remove sin in our hearts and our lives. Anything that would hinder you from being able to paint on this canvas, 
remove that so that you might be able to be seen. We pray this all in Jesus' name.